Santana very much. Please um, do keep that Bible passage open because we're going to think about um, uh, what, it, what it says to us uh, today. Um, now, the number, of, um, the number of people going to church in the UK has apparently gone down by about 40% in the last 40 years, nearly half. Uh, our society has gone from calling itself Christian uh, to describing itself as either uh, multi-faith, multicultural, uh, or secular. Uh, and within um, the Church of England, uh, which we're a part of at Grace Church, uh, many are driven to despair by uh, the frequent divisions and revisionist rhetoric, uh, with loads of people seeking to get rid of the words of Jesus in favour of what's more normal or acceptable in our society. So what do we do with that? Are we okay with this? Um, What do we do with that sort of large-scale rejection of Jesus? Is the church uh, still relevant? Is the Bible still uh, for us? Some would say that that, um, uh, with everything that's going on uh, in the world around us, that proves to us that, in fact, Christianity is just nonsense, or at least Bible Christianity. And for many who wouldn't go that far, and who are following Jesus, it means that there's this sort of dread or or, or doubt uh, that, that perhaps... It's not what we thought it was. Perhaps on a a more personal level, uh, you might know someone who would have called themselves a Christian before and has since uh, turned away from Jesus. Perhaps someone who had been following him. And um, uh, perhaps that's even you. What does that do for us? It's very hard to believe when things are going wrong. It's very hard to believe in Jesus when things seem to be going wrong in the world. And if you've ever experienced any of that, then I think today's passage uh, can really help you. I mean, imagine how... Um, I'll take this one. Um, I'll, it's right. you leave that on there. Just turn that one off, Josh. Um, uh, perhaps... Um, uh, uh, you know what, what happens uh, in, in the story going on. Um, uh, because um, here we have the 12 disciples of Jesus who um, uh, uh, he had trusted, had lived with him for, for, for three years. One of them betrays him so that he is arrested and then publicly executed after having been condemned as a criminal and a liar. How hard it would have been for them to believe when everything seemed to be going wrong. And this passage helps us see why not only they continued to believe, but they told everyone else in the world uh, to believe. And Christianity exploded. Now, um, I think in, in, um, in, in our society today, uh, it's easy to feel like we're in the midst of just total chaos. Uh, you know, that there's no big uh, plan, no big picture, no big uh, truth or story. We're in, we're in darkness. And, um, and, and that's been increasingly the case. 
Uh, over the last uh, hundred years, as society rejects not only biblical truth, but the idea of any truth, any one truth for everyone, that we're all heading in the same direction. That it's meant that we've all had to bear that, that burden, that responsibility of working out what everything's all about for ourselves, which is too big a load for any one of us to carry. And for those who are following Jesus, we, we look around at the world and, and we find ourselves uh, feeling perhaps defensive or afraid or a sense of resignation, a sort of uh, fatalist hunkering down because it, it feels like everything's going wrong out there. But none of that is the way it's meant to be. None of that darkness, none of that defensiveness. And today's passage, I think, shows us how we can find a better way. Uh, so what does... Uh, God have to say in John chapter 13, well, um, we find ourselves in this passage, if, you, if you're listening out, uh, at the dinner table with Jesus um, and uh, with his 12 disciples, his closest friends, with whom he'd lived and, and travelled and taught and, and shared everything. And um, in those days, uh, you didn't uh, have dinner around the table uh, that's why it says they were, they were reclining. You'd have them on kind of sofas, and you'd share a sofa and kind of lay down with each other. It's very intimate and close. And in that setting, Jesus wants to, to raise a very painful topic. It's a very important thing. Uh, have a look at uh, verse 21, if you've got your Bibles open. If you shut them, open them back up, page 1081. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. It's a really emotional thing for Jesus to talk about. He's really hurt, troubled in spirit. And um, he gives a long preamble before he, he breaks that news to them about this betrayal. Uh, it's because it's such, a, such an important thing. Verse 18, have a look back up. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those whom I've chosen. But this, what he's about to say, is to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. That's from Psalm 41 that um, Santana read to us before. Uh, verse 19, I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. Whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he'd said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified. Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. And the d disciples are just flabbergasted at this idea. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. How could any of us betray Jesus, who's been so good to us, who's done nothing but good for us. They know and trust one another. They've lived together. They, how could any of this band of brothers be the betrayer? By the way, this, um, this account is not written by a kind of uh, historian, a neutral third party who, who heard about what was going on. This book uh, this, this gospel, John's gospel, was written by one of the disciples, one of those 12, who was there, lying on a couch with Jesus. And not just one of the 12, actually one of the, the three who were Jesus' special friends, especially close, along with Peter and James. 
And for John, it wasn't uh, the, the done thing to, to name himself, to, to blow his own trumpet. He's the one in verse 23, uh, if you look down one of them. The disciple whom Jesus loved was reclining next to him. Not saying that he loved him more than the others, but rather uh, he knew he was a, a recipient of Jesus' love. Uh, he was reclining next to Jesus. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. And so leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? This is, um, let me demonstrate. There's hands on the bench up here. Let me try and demonstrate this, this thing. So instead of sitting up at the dinner table, like this, eating, you know, in a nice, polite English way, they were all kind of, oh, actually, be on their left, they lean with their left elbow, lean down on the sofa, and there'd be multiple of them, someone here, someone here. And so if, if I'm Jesus, sorry, I'm not really... Um, if I were Jesus, John would be here. He leans back against him, like right next to him. And he asks him. And, um, and look what happens. Jesus, uh, so it's, it's slightly private, that bit. It's not, um, uh, it, this isn't with, with all of them around the dinner table having this conversation. Leaning back against Jesus, he asks him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it's the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. Remember Psalm 41? It's the one he shares bread with. He's going to betray him. That's why Jesus uses this, this bread. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Jesus, Judas took uh, the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you're about to do, do quickly. No one understood. Jesus um, uh, told John secretly who it would be, and then uh, later reveals it uh, to everyone else. And, and, um, and it is... Poignant, isn't it? He does it by giving him bread. By sharing his bread, he points out the one who's going to betray him. It's, it, it feels so sad and, and, and difficult, moving. But actually, the, the real surprise of the story is not that. The surprise is what it teaches us. Because it teaches us a really important point that, that I think is... Um, necessary for us to get our head around if we're going to be able to cope with a world where things seem to be going wrong. Um, and here's the surprise. Betraying Jesus can be a good thing. Do you hear me right? Yeah, betraying Jesus can be a good thing. Let me explain. I'm not saying that betraying Jesus is ever the right thing for someone to do. It's not the right thing for Judas, it's not the right thing for us. Judas is committing a terrible evil that eats him up and he ends up killing himself um, not, not long later. And yet I want us to notice uh, three things from today's um, true story that show us how Judas betraying Jesus is a good thing and therefore that will help us to cope with the things that are going wrong in the world around us. So first... Look back at that very first verse again. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. And here's the point. God uses what Judas does in going against Jesus to keep his promises. That's another way of saying Judas betraying Jesus is a key part of God's plan. Even when, when, um, when it looks like Judas is, is going to turn, you know, overturn everything that Jesus has been trying to do, actually that was all a part of God's plan. God uses evil 
as part of his plan. Um, children, if, if you've got um, uh, your activity booklet, uh, this is um, uh, the next big point. God uses evil as part of his plan. That's, um, that's why we read Psalm 41 together before. Jesus quotes it to help his disciples understand what it is that's going on. How could God let this evil thing happen? How could Jesus be taken in by Judas and, and his scheming and, and let him be amongst himself to be stabbed in the back, amongst them to be stabbed in the back? Well, he's using it to do something good. Now, it's worth knowing that when Jesus quotes from a, a, a psalm, um, it's not just uh, that uh, he's, he's using that little bit. Uh, because the, his, his, um, his disciples and, and the people who would have first read John's Gospel would have known all the Psalms. They'd have been singing them uh, all of their lives. They'd have known the whole thing. And they would have known everything else in Psalm 41. Everything that that means uh, for them. So it's a little bit like if I said, let it go, let it go. <laughs> there we go. Okay, good. Yeah, you know. So it's not, it's not that if I were to do that, if I were just saying, and it's not just that I'm saying let it go, it's I'm, I'm, I'm talking about a song that you all know. It's a bit like that with Psalm 41 here. Jesus is getting them to think of Psalm 41, not only that a close friend would betray God's promised king, the one who shares his bread, but more than that. Notice, um, perhaps you, you, you remember... Uh, how the psalm went on when Santana read it. Um, he said, For even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread has turned against me. The next bit, but may you have mercy on me, Lord. Raise me up that I may repay them. I know that you're pleased with me, for my enemy does not triumph over me. Because of my integrity, you uphold me and set me in your presence forever. So Jesus isn't just saying, this is a betrayal by a close friend like in the Old Testament, it said was going to happen for me. He's saying, this is a betrayal that won't defeat God's purposes for me. This is a betrayal that still I will triumph over and God will set me in his presence forever. So Judas betraying Jesus is a terrible thing. It is a sin. It's, it's awful. But in God's amazing and marvellous and mysterious big picture plan, it is good that this happened. Because evil is a part of God's good plan. Okay? Don't worry, if that still feels a bit wrong and a bit confusing, we, we, there's more to say. Uh, the second thing, and um, specifically, God uses evil to help people believe in Jesus. Do you notice that? The passage says that really explicitly. Um, uh, back up at the beginning, Jesus quotes this Psalm 41 uh, in verse 18. And then verse 19, I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Perhaps um, if you know the, the story of Jesus, it seems surprising to you that he chose Judas in the first place. He let Judas into his inner circle and trusted him. And made himself vulnerable to him. Uh, Jesus seems to be, at this point, if, if you've been with us the last few weeks going through John's Gospel, he's kind of hiding from the authorities. Because the authorities have an execution warrant out against Jesus. They, they're finding him trying to kill him. And so G Judas withdraws from public life. And he takes Judas with him. And so Judas will stab Jesus in the back, take the authorities right to Jesus. They end up executing him. And it sounds, therefore, like this should stop us believing in Jesus, right? 
I mean, if he didn't even know, you know, what was going on inside Judas, one of his closest 12, what good can he be for us 2,000 years later? If he was going to get killed when he was trying to hide, what good is he? And that's why it's so important that Jesus says what he says here, that he um, uh, warns them about it beforehand. It's not actually here. There are three times before that he warned them about this particular betrayal, and, um, and John points out that it's going to be Judas. Uh, so if, um, if you're writing notes, you can write these down. Chapter 6, verse 71, chapter 12, verse 4, and chapter 13, verse 2. Three times before this, Jesus has predicted that there would be a betrayal of him by his close friend. And because of that, far from diminishing Jesus' power and authority in our eyes, this event should actually magnify it. It's not just that Jesus can withstand everything that his enemies can throw at him. And if, that, if that's the case, I mean, that makes him powerful, right? He's, he's more powerful than any of his enemies because he can withstand all of their plots and scheming and still do what he was meant to. He can still defeat the devil, still rise from death. He does those things. But what we, we, we see from this passage that is so much bigger than that is Jesus is so much greater than everyone else, so much bigger, so much more powerful, so much more wonderful, that he uses his enemies' best attempts to stop him to do what he wanted to do. It's a little bit like, I think I've used this illustration before, playing chess with someone much better than you. If I, if I were to play chess with Neil Menon, and um, I have done, and I will lose, and, and not just will I lose, he will know just what I'm going to be thinking of doing in such a way that he can use what I'm doing to achieve what he wants to do. And I think, oh, I'm doing something really clever that's going to defeat him, and actually, he, he's like, aha, brilliant, perfect. Just what I was hoping he'd do. And so, Judas, and, and actually the Jewish leaders who, who um, were really worried that Jesus was going to start a kind of revolution and they'd lose um, uh, the support of the Roman Empire and, and, and perhaps they'd be, you know, stamped down on and they certainly would lose their privileged place in society. They were really scared. So they said, right, we've got to get rid of Jesus. And so they paid Judas money so that he would help them. And Jesus uses all of that planning and scheming as a key part of his plan to do what he wanted to do. He turns it all on his head to win the victory. God uses betrayal, God uses evil to increase belief. Okay, and, and why is this so important? Why did Jesus need to use uh, this, this plan to kill him? Well, because God uses Judas' betrayal to save the world. <laughs> so not, not only is this uh, betrayal a, a good thing, it is a key part of the very best thing. Jesus uses this betrayal to save the world. How does that work? Well, uh, whether or not you're a Christian believer here today, uh, you might have heard the phrase, God works in mysterious ways. Have you heard that before? Yeah, God works in mysterious ways. It's often used in just the wrong time, in just the wrong way, as a kind of cliched solution to actually a very complex problem. Uh, so um, if you feel it coming over, you probably stop yourself. Um, uh, the, 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 but here, it is really true. 
God does work in mysterious ways. And the great mystery of the gospel, as it's described in the Bible, um, is how God's plan could do all these unexpected things. And the centrepiece of God's whole plan in human history, if you were able to kind of step back and take a bird's eye view of, you know, however many thousand years of human history, and um, look at what's the one moment that's the, the crucial bit, the most important bit to understand, it is what's about to happen in John's Gospel. The, the time when Jesus dies and rises again. That is what it's all been about. Half of John's Gospel is about Jesus preparing to go and die in the, in, on the cross. Because it's on the cross that Jesus takes away guilt and shame and evil and sin and deals with it. Once for all, it's on the cross that God's justice, getting rid of evil, punishing it, and his mercy, taking people who've committed evil and forgiving them, can meet. It's on the cross that Jesus defeats the power of evil in this world. It's on the cross that Jesus demonstrates what true obedience to God looks like. It's on the cross that Jesus shows us what true love for other people means. It's on the cross that God's plans are accomplished. And in order for God's plan for Jesus to go to the cross to happen, Judas needs to betray him. And so he does. God uses Judas's betrayal to save the world. As I've said, that doesn't absolve Judas of responsibility. He does what is evil. But God uses that evil for good. That's why I'm saying that betraying Jesus can be a good thing. But here's where it really hits home. Because betraying Jesus, if you believe that betraying Jesus can be a good thing, if you believe that God can use evil for good, then it would massively transform our experience of evil in this world. It would massively transform um, our response when we encounter evil. Our our fears would diminish, our trust would grow. So we'd be less scared of, of something bad happening, someone doing something wrong, someone doing something painful to us. And, and when we look around at the world, world around us and things seem to be going against Jesus, it wouldn't make us worry that perhaps it's not true. When we see church attendance in this country shrinking, by the way, globally church attendance is rocketing at the moment, but in our country it's shrinking. Or if we see a friend turning his back on Jesus, believing in John 13 would mean we don't despair, we don't withdraw, we don't even need to doubt Because God uses things which seem all wrong to accomplish his plan. If you're feeling like your life is in confusion and chaos, you don't really know what's going on, you you don't know what to do about stuff, well, believing this opens a way out of that darkness and confusion and chaos. It's not random. It's not chaos. It's all going according to God's plan. So if you want to know what's going on, listen to what God says about his plan. Pick up one of these. Give it a read. You'll find a way out of darkness and into the light. We don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be defensive. We don't need to give in to that kind of fatalist resignation about the faithlessness of those around us. Actually, this enables us to respond to rejection or to evil with grace and love. Let me give you an example of how this worked out for for someone. One person understood this uh, was called Joseph, uh, the Joseph of Technicolor Dreamcoat fame. 
uh, if you've seen that musical. Perhaps you know the story back in, um, in Genesis. He was betrayed by his brothers in a really significant way. Okay, so he was betrayed in, in, in that he was sold to some foreigners, Egyptians, to be a slave. They sold him into slavery. That is serious betrayal by a brother, isn't it? Let alone uh, by 11 brothers. Um, uh, and um, he, he went there. When he, when he arrived as a slave, he, he gave everything he, he, he got to, to serve his, his master. And despite doing that, he was locked up in prison for something he didn't do. He was confronted with a lot of evil. He was on the receiving end of a lot of betrayal. And then later, God, God raised him up, took, got him out of prison, raised him up to a position of, of really massive power and authority. He was basically the prime minister of Egypt later on in life. And it just so happened that his brothers came to Egypt because they were starving and they really needed food. And they'd heard there was food in Egypt. So they came to Egypt. And it just so happened they came to him. Now, here you are, Joseph, with these betrayers who ruined your life on purpose. In, in, the palm of, in the palm of your hand, you can do whatever you like. You have all of that power. What are you going to do? Well, instead of taking revenge, do you know what he said to them? Uh, let me read it out. This is back from Genesis chapter 50. Joseph said to his brothers... Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. He doesn't gloss over that. He knows that they really hurt him. But God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Do you see how it's the same as Jesus? You intended it to harm me. God intended it for good, to save many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. He reassured them and spoke kindly to them. If you believe, like Joseph, that God can use evil and betrayal for good for you and for others, that will enable you to respond to evil, however painful, however close the betrayal, with good to hurt with forgiveness, to respond to rejection with patient perseverance. If we as a church were to integrate this into our thinking as a church family, it will mean that we will be able to engage with the most difficult people, uh, those uh, perhaps who are most unlike us, people perhaps that we might be afraid of otherwise, otherwise, people who seem to hate Jesus and us. It will mean we can demonstrate, by contrast to others, the wholesomeness of the Christian gospel, even to those who utterly oppose it. It will mean that we can be an inclusive, accepting community where those whose lives are real mixed bags and who carry shame or guilt or fear or rejection will feel loved and welcomed. I wonder, what would it look like for you to believe this? What could it look like for us? Let me pray. Uh,